From the first book of Samuel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. When the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on for year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would not say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Then when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair on the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you only took on your servant's misery and remembered me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine." Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. The word of the Lord. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning with verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly the, to the hope we profess, for he who promised is, faith, is faithful." And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. 
the word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? From the gospel according to St. Mark, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all today. I'm excited about uh, um, this meal that we get to share together after service today. I hope you can stick around for that. Um, also want to give you a little bit of a heads up today on uh, where we're headed in the church calendar. Um, next week uh, is, the, is Christ the King Sunday. So it is the last week of the church year. So it's kind of odd when we have our calendar as a kind of our, our cultural calendar and what our society goes by. And then the church calendar is kind of different. So uh, it's actually appropriate in the church that during Advent, which is in two weeks in December, we say Happy New Year because it's the church's new year, kind of the beginning of uh, our orientation for the year and all that we're doing. So we've got this week and then next Sunday is the last week and it's called Christ the King Sunday. We end the year acknowledging that Christ is the King, that he is Lord over all of it. Um, next Sunday, I want to ask for your prayers. I'm going to be preaching at our sending church in Tulsa next Sunday. It's a cool opportunity to do that. And David Wally is going to be preaching here. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and then also Jacob and Langley Burton are going to be leading worship for the first time with us. So that'll be a really cool thing. So you want to be here next Sunday. Um, and then, yeah, and then the following week is Advent. And Advent is this season of anticipation. As we prepare for Christmas, so much of Christmas in our world is built on this idea of we buy and buy and we work and work and we try to um, just come up with this big event and then Christmas Day happens and it's all over, <laughs> right? Maybe we have some good shopping days, but that's kind of all that we do. Well, it, traditionally in the church, Advent, these four weeks before Christmas, are these seasons of longing. There are these seasons of anticipation, of hope for Christ coming into the world. And then we actually have 12 days of Christmas where we just breathe in that season and we live into that season. So Christmas is not over December 25th. It actually continues for 12 days. That's where that whole song comes. I don't know where partridge in a pear tree fits into the whole thing, but, but that's where that song comes from, the 12 days of Christmas and everything. So that's where we're headed in our season right now. Um, and today I, I wanna talk a little bit about um, this this passage in the Old Testament that we read about this figure, Hannah, in the scriptures. Um, at Lucy's school last week, we did this parent 
learning experience at her school. Her school's kind of hippie, but it's great. And they had us there, and they're teaching us, um, teaching us these different things that they're learning. So big words like project-based learning and content literacy, and we're learning all these things. And the, ki- the parents are actually going through the things as the kids would. So they're actually treating us as children as we're going through it, which was really interesting. But then one of the things that we did was this game called Brain Builders. And in Brain Builders, the object is to build a brain as tall as you can without it falling over, and you build it out of pipe cleaners and straws, because that's what we're doing. But the pipe cleaners that you get are based on, like, you roll dice and you draw cards, and it's a little bit complicated, but, but you have experiences that happen in your life that affect you in certain ways. So some experiences, you get a straw that's, like, strong and strong strength when you have social support, right? Sometimes you just get a pipe cleaner if you have a kind of a bad or traumatic experience in your life. And then sometimes it's something that can be neutral, difficult situation that you could go through positively or negatively, and then you roll the dice and see kind of which one that you get. And then you start with a certain set of genetics, you start with certain social supports, really interesting. And then at the end, you just have this crazy pipe cleaner brain thing that you've built. And so, so we're working through this, and, and one of the things that really struck me in this experience is just how all of us deal with and all of us are wrestling with and making sense out of some kind of grief or trauma or loss in our lives. All of us are are going through that. And I remember reading in a textbook in college that there are some psychologists who have suggested that all of life is actually, and this may be the negative way of looking at it, but all of life is some way dealing with grieving, loss, trauma in our lives. Um, they're all different kinds of trauma, but one that I remember distinctly reading in college was that there were some who suggested that even birth itself is a traumatic event. You can imagine that, right? So even dealing with that traumatic event and, and wrestling through all of these kind of things, and yet we all grieve differently, and different, different ones of us are grieved in different ways by different kinds of things. You may have heard of the five stages of grief. Has anybody heard of this before? Five stages of grief. Um, This is a model designed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and the idea is that when someone grieves something, they go through five stages. Denial, depression, anger, bargaining, and acceptance. And I won't go through all of these today. This model is incredibly helpful, but it's also not perfect. It's not for everybody. Um, It has its flaws, and anytime we're dealing with something that involves real people, Um, we can't always, no model, no matter how helpful it is, is ever really perfect because we're messy, people are messy. Um, But there's something unique about grief. And and today I wanna talk about, because of our passage, the grief associated that Hannah is experiencing, the grief associated with infertility. And it is unique among grief. Um, All grief is different, all loss is different. Different cultures view having children in different ways. Um, infertility stands out as a specific kind of grief, partly because it's rarely final, um, and that's part of what actually makes it so difficult. Um, And often its source is unknown. You're not grieving death necessarily, even though that's often involved in it, but it feels like a kind of hopelessness. And because grief and infertility is, um, is not quite as obvious it often hides in the shadows. Uh, many, many of you know that Ashley and I have struggled with infertility throughout 
most of our marriage, um, uh, about nine years now. And um, I remember, and not even remember, because it's, it's happening in us now, but the grief of this, the grief of wanting and desiring to have children, longing to have children, um, and that all happening for us is um, just an incredible challenge. In fact, we had, it's been a number of years now, but we had, when we kind of first started the church, we had a family that came to the church. And we told our story, and we used to tell our adoption story and our infertility story almost weekly for a while. We talked about it fairly regularly. And we had a couple that came to the church, and they came and they heard our story of how God has been faithful through our infertility and our adoption story and all those kind of things. And that couple <laughs> started coming to the church after that regularly, and then they, they told us that um, they found out they had been struggling with infertility for so long and trying to have children, and then they found out they were pregnant that Sunday that we told our story. And so they said, I think it's because of God moving in this church. <laughs> and so we're here and we're part of this church. And we rejoiced with them and we still do and we celebrate what a beautiful, amazing thing that God did. And yet in our lives, we sit there and we go, hmm. <laughs> so God does this for other people. Why? You know, why not for us? Um, I say this again, I, and I hope you guys know when I share these stories, this isn't uh, catharsis for me this morning. This is because our passage has to do deeply with infertility today. And I wanted to explore that this morning. Um, I was encouraged this week to see um, Michelle Obama has released a book and she discusses, you've probably seen this, she and her husband, her husband's kind of famous too, their, their struggle... <laughs> their struggle with infertility and miscarriage. And she says this, she says, it turns out that even two committed go-getters with a deep love and robust work ethic can't will themselves into being pregnant. She says, I felt like I failed because I didn't know how common miscarriages were because we don't talk about them. Michelle Obama is just so widely loved in many ways, and some, some see them as kind of like a perfect family that for her to open up in this way, I think is culturally significant and about something that's not talked about publicly all that often. Um, but this is a pain that so many people, we didn't know until we went through miscarriage after miscarriage and infertility, we didn't know how common this was, how so many people uh, go through these kind of things. Before I was four years old, um, my mother had multiple miscarriages. My parents had me, and then they were struggling to have another child. And I remember actually a couple times that we would go out to dinner and they would make a big announcement, we're having a baby, right? And then there was loss. Um, and I remember hearing um, this story, the Hannah story, I, a Sunday at church. I would go early with my dad, just like Lucy came with me <laughs> this morning. I remember hearing this story and I went to my mom and said, mom, I heard this story about Hannah and about Samuel. And God told me, if we just commit our child to them, to him, I will have a baby sister. I was clear about sister, right? To me, that was a black and white thing. The Bible says this, we do it. And that happens, okay? So do that. Now, of course, my mom was already committing her children to the Lord, <laughs> you know? Um, now, what's interesting about that story is sure enough, pretty soon after that, right after that, my little sister was born, uh, Caitlin. And my mom has told this story for years about an example of childlike faith, right? A childlike faith. 
And yet as an adult, I can now celebrate that moment as God taught us something about childlike faith. And yet I also know from our lives that there's no formula to this. (laughs) Ashley and I have chosen to commit our children to the Lord, right? Um, Sometimes I pray for that childlike faith and for the seeming divine intervention that happened for my parents. But I also realize that our story is different, that God has blessed us through adoption in a profound way. Uh, People often ask about this. And when you go through infertility and you adopt and you have the story like, like we do of such joy of adoption, it's not that the grief kind of halfway goes away or all the way goes away, okay? But it's also not that you just sit there going, gosh, God hasn't blessed us because of this. No, it's somehow, and you guys have all experienced this in your life in different ways, we hold joy and grief side by side, don't we? We hold both of those in our life, and that's okay, and that's appropriate to do that. We hold grieving in our lives, and then we also hold the joys, and it doesn't mean that we take away the grief because of the joys, and we go, well, the grief is fine, and I'm going to hide it because I've had so much joy in my life. No, that's not fair. It's not right, and it's not the opposite either. We hold in our lives joy and grief together. That's life. So in our Old Testament passage today, we see Hannah has this pain that she experiences. And the pain, as I was reading this, I kept, it's one of those things, as I'm reading it, I'm going, don't talk about your infertility journey. Don't talk about your infertility journey. Don't talk about your infertility journey. And then Hannah has all these things (laughs) that she's going through that we're like, that's familiar. That's so familiar. So I'm familiar, we're familiar with weeping and with not eating and with being downhearted and these things that are described. Even her husband's great love and reassurance doesn't fix it for Hannah, if you notice in this story. Now, just a little aside here. We need to talk about the multiple wives thing for a minute, polygamy culture, okay? Um, Elkanah here has two wives. Uh, Penanea, I think is her name. I tried to look at the phonetical pronunciation of this. And Hannah. Yet the Old Testament has this weird polygamy thing going on throughout it, if you see that, okay? And basically, in the beginning, in the beginning of our story, God designed human beings to be monogamous, okay? We see that from the beginning. Some of the early church fathers talked about how Israel's belief in one God and monogamy were supposed to go together, fidelity to the one. Like they were supposed to, marriage is supposed to mirror the relationship with God and his people. Fidelity to the one is this idea. Um, But we see in the Old Testament and throughout history, human societies experimenting with arrangements other than monogamy, okay? So we see that all throughout. And for a large portion of history, polygamy was broadly accepted. It is still many places throughout the world. And yet in the end, at least in our Western world, polygamy has been largely deemed as culturally unhelpful. We've kind of come through that in some ways. We still get fascinated with this idea sometimes. So TV shows like Sister Wives kind of bring it up to our cultural imagination every once in a while. But largely, most of our culture has said polygamy is a mess. (laughs) It involves rivalry and comparison. This may be some of the reasons why, not all of them, of course, that we don't um, engage in that as much anymore. But when we read the Old Testament, we have to be careful. We don't read these stories to instruct us in ethics, okay? 
So for example, we don't read this story and then go, hey, Elkanah had multiple wives, so that's what we're supposed to do. (laughs) No, this is a story of how God engaged the people here. But we can learn something through this. We can see something through this. Another cultural issue, we have the polygamy on one side, and we have infertility in this culture. In this culture, infertility defined a woman's worth much more than what we see today. This was a society that was tribal, it was pre-political, it was a society that was based on family bonds. And in this society, a woman's role was to deliver population growth. And that was the ultimate kind of role for a woman, for her family and for her tribe. Today, we've come to accept that people have numbers of different children, that it's, there's a variety out there. Some don't have children, some have lots of children, anything in between. But we still sometimes make subtle evaluations It's not the same way, but there are corners of our culture that make certain evaluations about things. Um, Most of you, I know most of us don't have children, but uh, you may have around the holidays, Aunt Edna, who corners you during the holidays and says, so let me ask you, do you guys just not like kids or something, right? Anybody have that relative? No, we're the only ones with an Aunt Aunt Edna. Um, And I want to encourage you, this is a total side note, but... um, For those of you that have those relatives that ask you those awkward questions, um, try to prepare something as a couple, those of you that are married uh, ahead of time. If you're not married with a sibling, you know, like some ways that you can help each other get out of those awkward situations, right? Like what are some, um, you know, some code words that we can say or some things to really help? And I say that not jokingly. I say that like seriously come up with that because there's nothing worse than being cornered by Aunt Edna at the Thanksgiving table with an awkward question, right? So let's help each other out in that way. Those of us with kids, we still run into strangers at Chick-fil-A that want to know whether we want to have more kids or are they going to have a brother or a sister or those kind of things. So these awkward, subtle evaluations still happen in our culture. They're nothing compared to the ancient world, but we still have those a bit. Penanea, who's Hannah's sister wife here, apparently has multiple sons and daughters, and that makes it harder for Hannah. It says, It says of Penedea, all her sons and daughters. And Hannah doesn't have any children. And Penedea doesn't let her forget it. So she keeps provoking Hannah. Um, She keeps saying this over and over again. It says year after year, she doesn't let her forget that Penedea has a bunch of kids and she doesn't have any. Her husband here, you can tell, poor guy, he's trying to help um, but he may have some selfish motives here too. He, he's saying, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? He's trying to fix it, isn't he? He's trying to make this better. Elkanah loves Hannah, but that doesn't fix it. It says that he gives her a double portion of the sacrifice. So even though Penanea has kids and she doesn't, Um, he gives this extra portion to her. And I think this shows us social support and love. It helps us to see people through grief. It helps us to come out of grief with strength. When we know that we're loved, when we know that someone's with us, it helps us walk through grief, but it doesn't fix grief. It doesn't love and social support doesn't take the storm away. It holds the person's hand through the storm. Those are different things. So he, through his love, he has the ability to go, Hannah, I'm with you, I love you, but not to fix the grief. Does that make sense? 
Hannah goes to the doorpost of the temple and Eli, the priest, is there. And Hannah, it says, she prayed and she wept bitterly. Um, St. John Chrysostom pointed out that Hannah's prayers here are pure and right. He says that politically ambitious men who are suing and grasping for a kingdom should be ashamed to remember Hannah's praying and weeping for a little child. Her prayers are pure. They come from a pure heart. She's grieving. She's longing for this. And she makes this promise. She says, God, if you will just save me. Now that may hit us at weird. weird. How is having a child saving her? Well, at that time, having children was your source of identity as a woman. And so it really felt like social salvation or healing. God, if you will just save me by giving me a son. And she says a son and we go, wow, why is she being picky? Shouldn't she be able to have a son or a daughter? Again, it's about legacy in that culture. It's about carrying on the legacy through the son. And she's like, if you'll just save me through giving me a son, then I will, and this is a surprise to us, I promise I will never cut his hair. What? What's going on here? Well, this is what we call a um, Nazarite vow that she's committing to here. He would, she's committing that he would be a particular kind of person set aside for the Lord, a monk-like figure. His hair would grow long. And also associated with this idea would mean he would never drink alcohol, okay? So some might say, if we use Kubler-Ross's model of grief, that she's in the bargaining stage of grief here, that she wants help through this pledge. But I think there's more going on than that. So at this point in the story, another dude comes along and tries to fix her grief, okay, Eli. So she's already had her husband try to come in and swoop in and say, don't you love me more than 10 sons? That should fix it. That should make it all better. But then now it's the high priest, Eli, and he just says, you're drunk. Will you put away your wine? And that's going to fix your problem, okay? Um, Eli might be sensitive here, not just because her behavior seems odd to him, but because she has left him out of the prayer process. He's the priest. And so at that time, if you wanted to talk to God, then you often would consult the help of a priest. A priest would, would help you with that. And she's not doing that. She's confident she can pray directly to God. She owns her story here. She goes and prays to God with confidence. And when he calls her out on it and says, you're drunk, put away your wine, she stands up to him. She says, not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli responds with this. He says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. So she leaves, and then it gives us these really wonderful details in this story. It says, she went on her way and ate something. This passage is real. It's earthy. It's describing someone who's really grieving. Sometimes after an extended moment of just pure sorrow, of crying, of pain, it's just simply time to eat something. It's time to take that next step in life. In the Jewish tradition, there is this practice of sitting shiva. You have to be very careful when you say that in church and don't say it five times fast. Sitting shiva. When someone dies in a family, a group of members of the community come to their house and all they do is sit. No words of encouragement, 
no helpful thoughts, no it's going to be okay, no here's a Bible bullet, scripture to give you to help you with this. No, they just sit in silence and they bring food, right? There is something about just presence (laughs) and food (laughs) that is a simple way of holding hands and walking through grief. So then it says, she arose and worshiped the Lord. Now notice, she doesn't worship the Lord after her son is born. She also doesn't worship the Lord so her son will be born, okay? She just worships the Lord at this point. She, of course, then, we know in the story, she gives birth to the great prophet Samuel. And she, Samuel means, because I asked the Lord for him, Okay. The more I reflect on this passage, the less I think that Hannah's prayer and God's response can just be boiled down into a formula. This is not as simple as I thought, even though it's wonderful as a child to to embrace these stories in a simple way. It's not as simple as just Hannah followed the formula. She asked God for this. She was faithful. She said she'd give give the son to God and then boom, it happened. You know, promise and answer. I also don't think that we can categorize Hannah's prayer neatly as the Kubler-Ross bargaining stage. God, if you just get me through this, then I'll give you this. No, I think there's something else going on with Hannah. Hannah knows something. She knows that her life and any future child that she has are better in God's hands than in her own hands. She knows that God is who is best for this child. She knows that not only is she dependent on God, not only is the world dependent on God, but this child in God's hands is in the best place possible. In Hannah's grief, she's come to a place where two things, first of all, she's owned her story. So she says, I am a woman distraught. I am a woman grieving. She openly grieves. She owns her story. And secondly, she's recognized she is empty-handed. Her identity, her story, her dreams, they all feel non-existent. And at that point, she turns to God. The Bible is full of stories of infertility. I don't know if you've noticed that. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel. It's interesting, we get to Moses. Moses was not born by a miraculous conception, but he had a miraculous escape. And if you think about how Moses' story would play out, He is the leader of a miraculous escape, right? So it makes total sense, but we see that going on. Samson's parents struggled with infertility. Elizabeth and Zechariah in the New Testament. Nothing in scripture tells us that Mary was infertile, but her pregnancy was completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. Why is this such an important theme? Why does it happen over and over again? Because having children was so important in the ancient world, fertility was the primary thing that people sought out pagan gods for. So at that time, if you couldn't have kids or related to that, if your crops wouldn't grow, you sought out the pagan gods for fertility. And I won't, I won't be graphic here, but that's why if you look up some of the ancient pagan gods, a lot of their temples look like anatomy, <laughs> human anatomy, okay? And it's because fertility was just such an important um, thing in that culture. They believed that if they worshiped and sacrificed the right way, fertility would come their way. Fertility of the human body, fertility of the crops were seen as signs of blessings of the God. And that God, because the society was tribal and family-based, and so the primary goals were agrarian fruitfulness and population growth. So when you didn't have those things, infertility in the ancient world became a sign of emptiness, of openness, of um, 
And infertility meant I have come to the end of my rope. I have nothing to give. I have nothing to offer. And each of these couples in the Old Testament chooses to trust Yahweh through that. In fact, Hannah's very name means, and our Hannah will probably know this, means grace. First century theologian Origen made a big deal out of the fact that Hannah's name means grace. Penanea's name means conversion. Okay, so you have these two things, grace and conversion. So he, he wrote about how somebody can have an intellectual conversion to faith, and that only gets you so far. It is a work that you do, and it's an important part of the process, but grace is something that's only God-given. It's not something that you can do. Um, there's this great book on the Apostles' Creed that I'd really recommend by a guy named Ben Myers. It just came out, and it points to the fact that a lot of people wrestle with this idea of Jesus being born of a virgin, um, and, and we wrestle with that, and there's a lot of reasons to wrestle with that, but the trouble comes when we think of this idea that Jesus was born of a virgin in isolation from the rest of the story. When we just think of it as a philosophical concept that's hard to kind of overcome. But if you look at the whole rest of the Bible, the whole Bible is built on this idea of miraculous births, all different kinds and different types, but it's built on this idea of human beings unable to bring about God's promises for the world on their own. It is always about God. He is always the hero of the story. And the reality is that we're all empty-handed. In good times and in bad times, this is not just a story of the grief of infertility. This is a story about a radical kind of trust, a radical kind of strength, recognizing that we're dependent creatures, that we were made that way when things are going really well in our lives. It can be tempting to think, we are the ones who put food on our table, right? We are the ones who provide security for ourselves and for our family. It's us. We did that. We can do it. On a macro scale, it can be tempting to think we are the ones who can solve the world's problems through innovation and technology. We can fix it. We can make the world better. But we are always, always, always dependent on the one who created and sustains the world, on God himself. Our dreams, our longings, our skills, our personality, our influence are all best used and most fruitfully used when they are surrendered to God. In this moment, Hannah trusts God. She worships God before she knows the outcome because she trusts that her dream and her desire is going to be better when it's orchestrated by God rather than when it's orchestrated by herself. And I want to suggest just quickly here that our gospel text that we read orients us similarly to this idea. The disciples and Israel itself are at a different place when it comes to loss and grief than where Hannah was. When we hear the story of Hannah, she is grieving because she's experienced loss, okay? She's experienced the emptiness of infertility. Well, in the time of Jesus, Israel is about to lose the most important thing to them, the temple, okay? Um, they're about to lose this temple, this center, this place. In ancient Israel, the temple was this signpost of God's presence living among his people. 
It was this place where they believed heaven and earth meet. So everything important that happened, happened at the temple. If you needed healing, you went to the temple. If you needed forgiveness, you went to the temple. If you wanted to meet with God, you went to the temple. So all society and culture actually revolved around God's house, the place where heaven and earth meet, the temple. But in Jesus's time, the temple had become really politicized. So there were some groups that really emphasized purity. And so they were keeping some people out of the temple. People who are sinful, people who are broken in their body, these groups are going, no, you can't, you can't come close. We're guarding this temple from you. In Jesus's time, this signpost, the temple, that pointed to who God is, this signpost had actually become an idol. This blessing from God in the temple was now being idolized. And I think sometimes we do that today. Like, In our world, when God blesses us with something, when we see God's goodness, sometimes instead of like allowing that thing to point us to God, we idolize that thing. So I've told you, I grew up in in a church culture that would be described as charismatic. And we celebrated miracles. We wanted miracles to happen all the time. We wanted healings to happen all the time. We always were praying for that and seeking that to the point where miracles became like our idol became the thing that we sought after instead of God himself. When all miracles, anytime there's any miracle in the world, what it's supposed to do is point us to God. (laughs) Instead, we became, that became an idol. In some evangelical Christian traditions, we idolize the Bible, where the Bible is this great signpost pointing us to God, but the Bible is not God itself. So sometimes we can turn the Bible into an idol. Liturgical uh, traditions can often idolize the liturgy or if we make any changes, we make any kind of adjustments to the liturgy that we're kind of throwing God away or something like that. This beautiful tool and tradition that God has given us is supposed to point us to God's presence with us in the sacraments. The liturgy itself is not God. God's blessings are always intended to point us to God himself. So what's happening in this story is the disciples are admiring the temple's architecture. They're going, wow, look at how big and beautiful these stones are here. Uh, Look at those large buildings. And Jesus becomes that guy. He becomes like a Debbie Downer. So he says, yeah, you know those buildings that you like so much? They're going to all be destroyed. Right? So what happens is privately, a few of them pull him aside and they say, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, when is this going to happen? And will we know when it's going to happen? Sometimes we've read this and I I know I did. And we think he's talking about like the end times here, like the end of things that that's going to happen, his second coming. But that's actually not what he's talking about here. Um, The gospels lead us on this journey where there's this kind of showdown. If you read any of the gospel stories between Jesus and the temple, The temple was a sign of God's presence, but Jesus is actually God's presence in the flesh. So this temple, this signpost, Jesus kind of keeps calling out the temple structures, (laughs) kind of keeps saying, yeah, that's incomplete. Yeah, that's not right. Yeah, you're not doing that right. Because the temple's time is coming to an end. The temple doesn't have the final word. It's just a signpost. Jesus is the one to whom the temple has been pointing all along. He is God in the flesh. Sign and reality. The Jewish people had held so tightly to the temple, they sought to protect its purity and to keep certain people out. They became obsessed with the sign that they missed the reality, that Jesus is the better temple. He is the the reality to which the signpost is pointing. The temple was good. It was the most important signpost, but Jesus is better. 
So what Jesus is describing here is an event that if you know history will happen a generation later, that a generation later in 70 AD, in the midst of wars and famines, the Jewish temple was destroyed. The Jewish hope of everything, the place where God lives among us is gone. The place where heaven and earth meet. So as a society, there is overwhelming grief. There's an identity crisis. Where is this going? And this is where we see the dovetail, Hannah's infertility and the Jewish anticipated grief with the loss of the temple. It's a place where we come empty-handed, where we go, the sign is not there, it's not present. And God, we choose to, do, we choose to trust that even in the midst of our grief that you are working, that you are doing something new, that there is something happening and the world is... Spring is springing up in the world. Our dreams, our hopes are a good thing. Our longings are good. Our longings are often God-given. Some of us are here and we long to get married one day. It's our hope. Some of us are here and we long to have kids one day. Some of us want to buy a house. We want to achieve the heights of our career. Some of us want our music to hit the mainstream or at least be something that can pay the bills, right? Some of us long for our success to be recognized. Some of our dreams are more abstract, like we hope for security or identity or affirmation by our peers. And I wanna to suggest today, those are not wrong. Those are good things to long for. They're hopeful and appropriate often things to long for. And yet Jesus is better than even our most noble dreams. All of these dreams are aches. They're signposts towards our need for God. And the problem with this is we struggle so much to trust him with our longings because the reality is he might do things differently than we want him to do. He might take our lives and do something different than we would anticipate doing. Our life may play out differently than we have planned it. And God's work is also often more silent than we want it to be. The priest Eli here is caught off guard because Hannah's praying in kind of a weird way according to the culture at the time. She's praying and she's moving her lips, but no noise is coming out of her mouth. I think this is so interesting because God's work is not always obvious. It's not even always audible. <laughs> it's often silent in a way that is baffling, that totally upends our expectations. But we trust, as Christians, what we're saying is we trust that our lives are better in his hands. Our lives are better walking his path, loving our neighbors as ourselves, laying our lives down. Like Hannah, we're called to worship, to own our story and express our desires to God fully and completely, trusting that no matter what happens, our longings, no matter what you're here today longing for, no matter what you're anticipating, no matter what you're hoping, no matter what emptiness you're feeling, that, that what we are saying is, and even in the times that we struggle to believe it, what we're saying is, God, my longings are better in your hands than they are in my hands. So I trust you with this. I own my story and I trust you with this. We don't trust God as a pathway to worldly success. We trust that in God, we have an entirely different hope and a hope that is truer and more sure. Amen? Amen. Gracious God, we thank you for this hope that we have in you. Lord, we come today, many of us wrestling with 
um, this grief and this emptiness that we've experienced. We come, most of us in this room, come today with grief and joy side by side. We have ways that we've seen your faithfulness, we've seen your blessing, and then we have ways that we ache and we long that things are not right. Today, as we worship, we worship not to get you to do something. We worship not even sometimes because you've done something, but we worship out of a sense of trust that our longings are better in your hands than they are in ours. Help us to see our story through your lens. Help us to know that you're with us in the grief, that you grieve right alongside of us, that you hope right alongside of us. Lord, we trust you and we thank you. We trust you with our story today. In Jesus' name, amen.